having secured a total victory over all of God's enemies, David celebrates by commanding the Ark of God to be brought into the holy city where it belongs. This is the 11th sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. A Royal Covenant reading coming from 2 Samuel and chapter 6, moving into chapter 6. The first 11 verses, the first 11 verses, beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubim. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error. And there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him in the city of David. But David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Paul writing to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, beginning in verse 17 to verse 29, by the same spirit the apostle writes, Now when this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it, and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, and when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, that is to say, without reverence, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily 
eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but God's word stands today as an ensign for each and every one of us, and his law is just, holy, and good. Now that David is fully established, his king, his house in order, at peace in the land, he sets out to return the holy ark of God to his capital city at Jerusalem. From the ragtag army of 600 men that he originally had while fleeing from Saul, he now has amassed for himself from very small beginnings. And so when very small beginnings are coupled with fidelity toward God, great things can be realized. Even from the smallest of beginnings. These were the choicest of men. These were the choicest of fighting men that that David now had as his disposal and command. They were called chosen men. The scripture identifies them as chosen men of the Lord. And they were all gathered together under the headship of David. And so David assembles these men to aid in the return of the ark to the holy city Jerusalem. So why... The ark. What was so important about the ark that David wanted to bring it into the city of Jerusalem? Well, first of all, the ark was one of the main pieces of furniture which was situated in the Holy of Holies while tabernacling in the wilderness with Moses and the Israelites. Secondly, more than simply being situated in the Holy of Holies, which was an incredible reality, the ark was where the sacrifice was made, and that was the astonishment. It was the place where God was sacrificing the lamb. On top of that ark was the sacred mercy seat where the blood would be spilled for forgiveness of sins shed for the remission of sins of his people. So this was a most sacred part of the ark, that mercy seat. The mercy seat was not only where the animal sacrifice was made, but it represented the ultimate sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Furthermore, thirdly, contained within the ark, housed the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod that budded, the pot of manna, which which shows the, the blessing of God as he provided for his people, the budding Aaron's rods showing that new life out of a dead branch, all of these representing gospel significance. It was the manna that represented the Lord himself, in fact, who is the bread of life and the idea that God can provide food even in the wilderness, even in the midst of a desert where there is no water. He can be that water for his people during their desert wanderings on the earth during their life. Fourthly, the ark represented the presence of God. And this is what David wanted again. He wanted to resume the presence of God back into the city of David. So the ark represented also the presence of God. Between the cherubim, upon the top of the mercy seat, is where God met with the priest. So you have on the top of the mercy seat two cherubim with their wings, almost touching one another, and under their wings, that was where the sacrifice would be made. We read this in Exodus chapter 25. Notice what it says. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold. Of beaten work shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the one end and the other cherub on the other end. Even of the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubim on the two ends thereof. And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings. 
and their faces shall look one to another toward the mercy seat, shall be the faces of the cherubims be. So you see they're looking at one another as they're looking also to witness what is happening on the mercy seat. Verse 21 of chapter 25. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above the ark, upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. This is why David wanted the ark there. From between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. So this was a most important piece of furniture that David had to have in the city of David. A common question that arises, however, when discussing the mercy seat is, what in the world are these cherubim? What in the world can these represent? Because we know they represent something. So what do they represent? Well, a careful study of Scripture seems to indicate that they represent the elect of God. But more precisely, those who have witnessed and experienced the remission of sins by the sacrificial Lamb of God. And it is these witnesses, these cherubim that are looking at the mercy seat, witnessing and being witnesses, actually being martyrs, because the word martyr is the word for witness or testimony, bearing the testimony of the Lamb of God's sacrifice. So they are witnesses of this mercy. And now, having witnessed and experienced a mercy for themselves, they are now to testify of the Savior's sacrifice. Now the first time a cherub is introduced to us in Scripture is immediately after the fall of Adam, where God places a guardian cherub with a flaming sword to guard the tree of life. That cherub is actually the pre-incarnate Christ. It is the pre-incarnate Christ that is now protecting the tree of life. He wields the flaming sword, which is actually a representative of the word of God as it executes judgment. And while the King James translates the word in the plural, cherubim, it should actually be translated as a singular word. The imagery of a winged cherub, the wings, why do they have wings? Why aren't they just faces? Why are they, why are they given such symbology of having wings? And this is why we, we get these, these pictures, these drawings of, of angels with wings, cherubims with wings. Why wings? Well, the imagery of a winged cherub points to the fact that the believers, if these cherub are actually a picture of the elect, that the believers also bear wings in the same way as God compares himself to an eagle and his people to his brood. Remember, he is as an eagle. Isaiah declares that the believers rise up on eagles' wings, symbolically referring to the fact that the believers rise up on the wings of God. And since he is the head, God being the head, and the saints are his body, both are identified as having wings. Remember, Christ was brooding over his, his chicks, his eaglets, with his wings. We find even in the beginning of the creation, the Spirit is brooding over the earth. So when God gave the pattern of the tabernacle in the wilderness to Moses, he told him to emboss figures of these cherubim upon the curtains. Why emboss these cherubim on curtains? Notice Exodus 26, verse 1 and 36, verse 8. Moreover, thou shalt make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twilled linen, and their linen, remember linen is always a reference to the priesthood. And who are we but the priests of God? Notice, Moreover, thou shalt make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twilled linen, 
and blue and purple and scarlet. Those are the colors of royalty. We are the kingdom of priests. We are priests and kings in the kingdom. With cherubims of cunning work shalt thou make them embroidered on the linen. And every wise-hearted man among them shall work the work of the tabernacle, making these ten curtains of fine twilled linen in blue and purple and scarlet with cherubims of cunning work made into that linen. So we see that in the tabernacle we have all of these linen curtains, these priestly garment linen curtains with these glorious colors with the embossment of cherubim. Note that wherever the linen curtains are with the royal colors of blue, purple, and scarlet, the cherubim imagery is found. Because we are not only the priests of God, but we are also connected with the royalty of Christ. The royal colors of Christ's majesty. We are a kingdom of priests, priests and kings of the kingdom. Solomon's temple design offers further clarification of what the cherubs represent and how they represent the believers since Solomon pairs the cherubim with trees, but not just any tree, palm trees. Notice 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 34 and 5. And the two doors were a fir tree. Now remember, as we've already discussed, the trees are symbolic of man, especially us as God he plants us as the trees of life, as he is the tree of life. And the two doors were a fir trees, the two leaves of one door were folding, and the two leaves of the other door were folding, and he carved thereon cherubims and palm trees and opened flowers and covered them with gold fitted upon the carved work. And so the tabernacle itself, with all of its furniture and engravings, represent the body of Christ with all of its glory, as well as representing the kingdom of God on earth. By bringing the ark of God into the holy city meant that God would now meet his people there. He would meet them there with the law, the Ten Commandments. He would meet them there with his mercy represented by the mercy seat. He would meet them there with new life represented by Aaron's fruitful rod and the bread of life represented by the pot of manna. He would be there amongst his people. Placing the ark within the temple of Yahweh, within the holy city of Jerusalem, would ensure God's blessing and guidance for Israel. And David wanted that more than anything else. David was seeking the closeness of God's intimate presence, and he wanted it not only for himself, but he wanted it for all of his people, all of God's people. Now consider the gospel significance of this historical event. So here we have the ark of God, symbolizing the presence of God, the body of Christ and the kingdom of God. And yet, the only way God's presence can be among his people is through the blood atonement of Christ symbolized by the mercy seat. David, a type of Christ, brings this relationship of mercy, union and communion, the remission of sins to his people and secures it within the temple and the city, which is also symbolic of the body of Christ, the believers. You see, we're the temple of God. So this presence of God is not really out there. When you think about God's presence, is God present amongst us? Of course he is. Where two or three are gathered together, there he is in the midst. But God is present in us. I remember a dear friend of ours used to tell her daughter, when her daughter was bored and she said, Mommy, I have no friends. She used to tell her daughter, Well, you go inside of your room and you pray with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, you've got plenty of friends. 
Because God is with you even when you're alone. Because the presence of God is in us. And David wanted that for his people. And so in this historical event, the gospel is presented to us once again. Note the declaration of verse 2 of chapter 6 of Second Samuel. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God. Remember, it was pretty much in exile. Whose name is called by the name of the Lord. Notice, whose name, the ark is called the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubim. So here we see David taking the ark from Baal of Judah to Jerusalem. Now this city of Baal is the same city as Kirith Jerim, where the ark rested for 20 years, pretty much in exile. 20 years in the house of the priest Abinadab during the days of Saul. We saw this in 1 Samuel chapter 7 verse 1. So when the ark was initially retrieved by Israel from the Philistine capture, it was the Levites that had received it. And upon receipt of the ark, however, the men of Beth Shemesh gaze upon it in a derogatory fashion. In other words, they look upon the ark and were mocking it without reverence. They were mocking it as to gloat over its return. And they are immediately smitten by God for disparaging the presence of of God's representation by the ark. Now we haven't read that yet, but this is found in verse 19. And he smote the men of Beth Shemesh, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord, even he smote the people, 50,000, threescore and ten men. And the people lamented, because the Lord had smitten many of the people with a great slaughter, because they looked upon the ark without reverence. They were gloating, they were, they were irreverent. This was a testimony that the ark was actually God's presence. And it was death to look upon God without reverence. So whenever you would walk into the temple of Jehovah, you would be, or you should be, reverential. And this was to strike fear in the hearts of men. That whenever they were in the presence of God, as in the time when two or three are gathered together in a corporate worship, they were to reverence. In verse 2 of 2 Samuel 6, God reveals something else about the ark. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called, notice, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubim. So now God is giving the ark an actual name. The ark is called the name of Yahweh Sabaoth the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubim. The Hebrew intention of this verse seems to indicate that whenever the ark is, is at rest, wherever the ark rested, that is where the name of the Lord would be invoked. David would have it in Jerusalem so that whenever people would go into the temple of God, they could invoke the name of God. They could call upon God. They had the liberty to call upon God. They could go boldly before the Lord because the presence of God was there. But in order to return the ark, it had to be physically transported. David could just not snap his fingers and there the ark was. Now as a holy article, as a holy piece of furniture, probably one of the most holy pieces, that was once housed in the Holy of Holies within the tabernacle of God, care had to be taken in its transportation. It was also very important as to who would transport the ark. In other words, who was qualified to transport the ark? You couldn't get anybody. In other words, if I'm going to transport a piano, 
I'm going to want to know that the guy who's going to transport my precious cargo is skilled with the right tools. He has the right experience. He's qualified for the job. So who would be qualified for the job? So we read this in verse 3. And they set, so they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. So these two men are chosen. Everything that the ark was to to use for the transportation, of course, had to be sanctified, even the men. And this is probably why they thought, and I impress upon you that, they thought, with the wisdom of fools, that should have known better, they thought that they would have a new cart. Sounds, sounds holy. It sounds feasible. Perhaps they even had a ceremony to, to baptize it, to have a ceremonial washing. And then they would put the cart, present it to the people, and place that ark carefully with ceremony upon the new cart. The problem here that while a new cart seems to be sufficient, and it was a logical, and you know that's funny, it's logical, It was a logical device used to move the ark from one place to another. It was not the biblically prescribed method for transportation. The ark of God was never to be drawn by animals. It was to be placed upon the shoulders of the priests. They were to bear the testimony of God, not the animals, not the reprobate, but God's people. On each side of the ark, there were already, on each side of the ark, there were already rings. In the construction of the ark, there were already rings on the sides of the ark where long poles were placed so that on either side of the ark, the priests could lift the ark on their shoulders and transport the holy ark in that fashion. To place it on a beast, regardless of whether it was on a new cart or not, was forbidden. Now the priests should have known that. Abinadab should have known that. David should have known that. Everyone should have known that. But consider who was in charge. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab. They were the ones who were driving the new cart. These two men, both sons of the high priest, were in charge. They may have been the sons of the high priest, but they were not priests themselves. They, they were Levites, but not Levitical priests. And only priests were allowed to touch holy things. So we have problems before anything even begins. And being Levites, they should have known better than to go outside of their divine ordination, especially being sons of the high priest. In the same way that the two sons of Aaron, the high priest, Nadab and Abihu, were given the charge of a holy fire of God, but were destroyed for their human inventions by bringing to the worship strange fire, so do we see this happen to Uzzah, in the situation of the cart. Because Uzzah is bringing in human inventions. He's being judged for human inventions, which was a direct rebellion against the clear commandment of God in the same way that Nadab and Abihu would judge for their human inventions by bringing strange fire into the worship of God. I'm going to say strange fire or a new cart. We could say, look, we, we could have strange doctrines, strange practices, It's all the same. This is the second dramatic act of God's sovereignty. 
as it concerns keeping his commandments, especially when it comes to the worship of God and the duty of the priesthood. If there is to be any gospel message taken away from this, it seems to imply that only the people of God, those who are of the priesthood of believers, must be able to bear the presence of God and not to reprobate people of the earth, typified by these animals, these oxen. Interestingly enough, Uzzah had the outward position of priest, just like so many ministers today, yet failed to adhere to the clear commandment of God by using his own inventions, his own ideas and inventions to exercise God's will and was killed for it. And herein is the lesson. How many modern ministers of the gospel today use their own human ideas and inventions to redefine orthodoxy and orthopraxy? How many ministers today redefine how worship is to be practiced? How many worldly inventions that are not sanctioned by scriptures, but rather are used by churches in their worship services? In Nadab and Abihu's case, they brought that strange fire into the worship service, and not the fire of God, which he had commanded them to use. And since fire represents the word of God, to bring strange fire into the worship service must mean that man's ideas about God and his word and the preaching of the gospel, but not the true gospel, must be dealt with properly. So whenever a minister perverts the word of God with strange doctrines or strange practices, it's like bringing strange fire into the worship assembly. It's also like bearing the testimony of the ark of the presence of God upon the shoulders of an ox instead of on the shoulders of a true priest. Now the end of that is always death and destruction. Jesus told the woman at the well, that those that worship God must, he used the word must, worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now if we do not let the Bible define those terms, we can say that worshiping God in spirit and in truth is whatever we want it to mean. Oh, we're very spiritual. Oh yeah, we're very truthful. Well, what does it mean? Well, well notice what he says. John 4.23 But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now to worship God in spirit and in truth means that worship must be according to the Word of God, which is defined and identified as spirit and truth. You see, if we're going to ask, how do we define the Word of God? We would say the Word of God is spirit, and the Word of God is truth. Note how Jesus defines his own terms. In John 17, he states that his word, the scripture, is truth. Notice, John 17, 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. He then says that his words, the scripture, are spirit. Spiritually referring to the scriptures again. John 6, 63. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, and they are life. And so, worship must be directed by the scriptures, and not by any man-made invention. Remember what he said, the flesh profits nothing. The inventions of men profit nothing. And this is called the regulative principle of worship. We are to be regulated by the scriptures when we worship God. 
In Uzzah's situation, he allows the cart to be carried by animals who represent those who are not Christians, thereby directly violating God's prescription for transporting the ark. Not only is he derelict in his duty to ensure the purity of the presence of God, but he is a co-conspirator. And this is what happens when ministers allow others to dictate how God should be present in the worship service. Today we see all kinds of stuff in the services. We see all kinds of ideas perpetuated within the worship assembly used to bring God's presence into the worship service. Oh, we want God's presence, so let's all stand on the pews with our hands up and calling out to God. Let's speak in strange tongues. Let's get some dreams. Come on, you had a dream, you had a dream. I had a dream that I was eating bad pizza the other night. What does that mean? Maybe it's because I had bad pizza. You see how ridiculous it can be. We have today the spirit of barking, the spirit of laughing, the spirit of vomiting, the spirit of falling backwards, forwards, sideways, up and down, theatrical productions, rock bands, healing services, which is really ironic because these churches that had healing services weekly all closed down because there was a sickness. <laughs> they were so afraid of getting sick. What happened to the healing ministry? Why don't we all line up and just go there if we got COVID? Whatever man seeks to invent, whenever he seeks to invent a, a new religious doctrine or experience other than following the clear dictates of God's word, wrath results. We're living in a day of wrath. And the only way to bring God's presence into the worship service is to do so by preaching His word faithfully, expounding it fully, and practicing it diligently. The return of the ark was a joyous occasion to be sure. Just think about it. It's been in exile for all of these years. Let's bring it back. This is great. We have... We have an army now. We have a city. We're, we're victorious. We're at rest. The land is at peace. Let's bring the ark back. Let's get God in the mix. Let's put him in the center of our lives like he should be. Note the fanfare. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord and all manner of instruments made of fir, wood, even on harp, psalteries, and timbrels. This was a national event. A national celebration with religious undertones. And that's what made it so intense. Furthermore, it was a celebration for the setting up of the temple of God, which is why musical instruments were used. Musical instruments were only to be used in the temple at Jerusalem, but never in the synagogues, since everything in the temple were shadows pointing to Christ in the gospel. When Christ appeared, those shadows were no longer to be used since the substance had come. And so the New Testament church is set up in the same way as the synagogues without instrumentation. Singing the songs of Zion. A cappella because we have become the instruments of God. David's return of the ark to the temple and to the city signified religious and national unity for Israel with the presence of God. You see, you can only have national unity when the presence of God is within that nation. When the law of God is the structuring component and His mercy at the center. This was to be a new life for the nation of Israel under God. And this is what Israel needed. And this is what America and every other nation on earth needs to be redeemed and reconstructed biblically. They need God to be at the center. In order for nations to be secure, free, prosperous and blessed by God, they need to be unified under God in five fundamental areas. Number one, religion. Secondly, education. 
third, law, fourth, military, and fifth, economics. Those five things are what construct a nation, whether they are going to be unified or disunified. Each of these areas must have a Christocentric foundation if that nation is to be blessed. Notice, firstly, nations must be united under a Christian religion, the Christian religion, the faithful scriptural religion. A pluralistic nation, as we have today, cannot long endure. It will eventually, and I guarantee this, it will eventually erode and erupt in civil war. It cannot endure. Traditions and varying cultural norms can remain intact, but these must be morally and ethically based upon Scripture. And so nations can only survive when they adhere to one true religion, and that religion is the religion of Christ and the Scriptures. Secondly, Nations must also be united under one education system. This system must be based upon a covenant structure with parents at the helm and Christ at the center. And look at what we've got in the churches. Everybody's sending them out into the, into the government school system to be told that they can be whatever they want to be. You can self-identify as a man, as a woman, as a, a, a dog or donkey, an animal, a book, a bridge, whatever it is. No more God. And still, and still, I don't see an exodus. What's it going to take? What's it going to take? That is how far America has fallen. Third, a legal system. The legal system of a prosperous system must be just and equitable and that system must then therefore be based on the law of God because that is the only just and equitable system. Penology and civil restitution must be based on the law of God. Fourthly, the military of a nation, if it is to be a prosperous nation and a righteous ethical military, must follow the rule of Scripture when it comes to just and unjust wars and how to formulate local militias. Finally, the monetary system must be based upon hard currency rather than paper money that can easily be inflated. Its banking system also must be reformed away from the fractional reserve model and its central banks and federal reserve cartel evaporated, decimated, Whenever a nation veers from these five fundamental Christian foundational pillars, the nation eventually collapses by imploding it within itself if it is not first invaded and destroyed from without. Well, David and Israel's people were rejoicing, an unexpected providence occurs. The ox stumbles. And when they came to Nake, Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the ox shook it. The oxen shook it. A providential orchestration of God to bring about his point. And this was a tragic reaction of Uzzah. For whatever reason, he thought that he had the right to secure the ark of God, not trusting that God would secure his own ark. He should have realized at that point, well, maybe that new cart was not such a good idea. God brings down his anger without mercy upon the man. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. Don't ever think that God winks upon irreverence. He does not. 
He honors reverence. He will be reverenced. And God smote him there for his error. And there he died by the ark of God. In the presence of God, he dies. Others act with both negligent and irreverent. And so as a result, God kills them. God killed them. God kills people that are irreverent. Maybe not today in time and in history, but he will kill them ultimately. This is the God we serve. This is a fearful God. We need to get that back into our thick little heads. Now consider this. If God can become so angry over an act of negligence and irreverence to destroy a man who is in charge of bringing the ark of God to the city, how much greater is God's anger kindled against those wicked, irreverent blasphemers in the halls of power, in the realms of family, church, or state? Will he not exact his anger upon them, his wrath upon them? We need only to wait and watch. It boggles the mind to think of what awaits so many of, so many of these irreverent reprobates that boast themselves as though they be as God. I watch the news, I watch governors, I watch presidents, I watch congressmen and senators, I watch tyrants across the, the sea, boasting themselves as if they're something, but they're nothing, they're puny nothings. It boggles the mind what God is going to do to them. Amidst a celebration, tragedy strikes, changing joy into sorrow and celebration into fear. And this is how quickly things can go sideways when there is rebellion in the camp. And this was obviously a great blow to David. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. Now to commemorate this tragedy, David renames the place and the place is called the breaking forth of Uzzah. That's what that means. Observe the psychological impact this event had on David. And David was afraid. The word there is he was fearful. He was terrified. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? Perhaps this event is what David was referring to when he wrote in Psalm 119, verse 120, My flesh trembleth for fear of thee, and I am afraid of thy judgments. This was a terrible day. It should have been a glorious day. You think people across the United States, they, they want to worship the Lord, they come in celebrating, there's timbrels and harps and festivals, and yet there's a new cart. And God's wrath is kindled because of the irreverence. So what was God teaching by this act of vengeance upon an irreverent, negligent rebel? Very simply, God will be reverenced. It's very simple. God will be honored. God will be reverenced, especially when it comes to his sanctuary and his worship. Now, there are a number of practical lessons to be learned from this event. Firstly, for the minister, be sure that your order of worship is not only reverential, but also structured according to the scriptures without any worldly inventions added. We are not to look to the world to gain members into our church. We're to preach the unadulterated word of God. If they like it, great, come on in. If you don't, well, there's a thousand churches out there that you can be damned in. Beloved, we are in a serious, serious situation. And I think because worship was simply taught to us as a ritual, it's really not that serious. I tell you this and I kid you not, worship is life and death. 
Worship is serious business. This is this is war. And this is why during the Reformation, the minister had to walk up a large flight of stairs ascending into the pulpit. Ascending up into the pulpit because as he ascended into the pulpit, he was to be reminded during that ascension that he was going to speak for God. And while he ascended the pulpit, he was to recognize how fearful a place that was. For the congregant, be sure that when you enter into the Lord's house and the Lord's day, you do so with reverence and humility and you teach your children to reverence also. This is not your house. And it's not my house. It's God's house. You know, sometimes we're just a bit too cavalier when we come into the sanctuary. Indeed, the Lord's Day is a day of rejoicing and celebration, and I don't want to take that away from anyone. And it's great that we have communion and fellowship. This is what the Lord's Day is all about. In the same way that there was celebration when the ark was being brought into the city. However, it is also a time when reverence is to be practiced. Remember, there are times and seasons for certain things. When you enter into the Lord's house, it is a time for worship. It is a time for reverence. Because there are, there are those that come into our sanctuary early to pray, meditate before the service. I try to refer to my, my sermon notes. And these, these brethren need to be respected. This place needs to be respected. A good rule of thumb to follow is this. Congregate, converse, chat, greet one another in the foyer entrance way before you enter into the sanctuary. Because the children are watching you. Children are watching you. They don't care what you say. They want to know what you do. They're watching us to see what is it that is acceptable worship. How does Daddy reverence the Lord on the Lord's day in the Lord's house? How does Mommy do this? Why can I get away with things at home that I just not getting away with in the pew? Number three, children. When you enter into the Lord's sanctuary, you too must be respectful, knowing that this is the Lord's house and God is watching to see whether or not you are showing respect by being reverential, quiet, contemplative, praying. The prophet Zephaniah says this in Zephaniah 1.7 and following, Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice. He hath bid his guests. And it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such that are clothed with strange apparel. Israel learned a very difficult lesson that day. And they learned that God will not be trifled with. Nor will he tolerate irreverence. As Paul tells the Galatians, God will not be mocked. And that is a lesson David and Israel should have never forgotten. Sadly, the lesson didn't stick with them for very long. Consider David's initial response to the incident in verse 10. So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him in the city of David, but David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Instead of continuing on to the holy city after that incredible event, David has the ark turn right there, it must have been right by the house, into this house that was nearby. And this was the house of a man called Obed-Edom. And it stayed there for three whole months. And while it was there, 
What do you think would happen? If the presence of God is in your house, if you, father, if you, mother, bring the presence of God into your house, guess what happens? For three months, Obed-Edom's house was greatly blessed. The entire household of the man was blessed. But who was this man? Who was Obed-Edom? The name Obed-Edom actually signifies someone who is the servant of Edom. The city where he was originally from was actually Gath, the Philistine city where Goliath was also from. And this man seems to have been a Hebrew, otherwise David would not have allowed the ark to stay there. Now from the account of 1 Chronicles 26, 4-8, through 8, he may have even been a Levite, and so this Levite is given charge of the ark for three months, during which at that time he is blessed by God. I might even surmise that Obed-Edom might have originally been a non-Hebrew, being brought into the Hebrew faith, maybe that would be gospel significant too, because then we see the presence of God going to the Gentile nations as well. Whatever the case is, when the presence of God is in a man's house, that house is blessed. And how did David know that man's house was blessed? Was it mental telepathy? No. The blessing was measurable. That's how you know you have been blessed of God because the blessings are measurable. And I don't mean in worldly goods. I mean in communion, in union with God, in prayer time, in devotions with your family, how your children are being raised up as olive plants around your table. That's how you measure whether or not God is present in your house. And this is what happens when God's people are in the presence of God. They are blessed. One final consideration. How do we enter into the presence of God today, seeing that we do not have the Ark of the Covenant physically with us? Well, we actually do, because we have God. But what about the practicalities? Well, be steady in your worship. And I don't mean only on Sunday. Worship God. When you get in the car in the morning, fathers, especially because you're so busy, you get in the car in the morning or you get on your tractor because you're plowing or whatever, you're, you're raising things, you're doing... Get that time devoted to God. Use that time as you're driving to work. Use that time. Talk to God. Worship at that time. Prayer. That's another thing. Talk to God. And I don't mean, thank you, Lord, for this food, bless it to our bodies. I mean, talk to God like you're talking to your friend. With reverence, mind you. Meditate. Chew the cud. Think about the Word of God. Think about the sermons you hear. Think about the meditations that you have read. Gather together in discussion about heavenly things also. Commune together in communion celebration. And finally, when we come before His presence, when we are thankfully rejoicing for His mercy and goodness toward us in the singing of His psalms, when we come before His presence, that's how we are to be thankful. Be thankful, thankful. Look at what God has given us. The amount of blessing. I'm sure Obed-Edom was so thankful that God had providentially orchestrated the presence of God to be in his house for those months. Notice what the psalmist says, Psalm 95.2. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Wake up in the morning early. Shower, get ready, get ready for that day. Put your children's clothes out the morning, the, the evening before so you're ready and get your whole day bathed in the things of God because we should show that thankfulness. So the psalmist says, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. 
So after the three-month sojourn in the house of Obed-Edom, David returns to the ark in order to bring it into the holy city of Jerusalem. We shall examine that next time when we return to the exposition of the second book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.